Amen. Well, praise the Lord, everybody. Praise I'm a little fired up tonight. I've got four pages of notes, and uh, I can't read a darn word on them. So, lots of scribbles. Uh, Brother Josh told me the uh, uh, hockey's tonight at 8. The jackets are playing at 8, so I promise you I'll get you out of here by 8. Miss, definitely miss our pastor. Um, and, uh, but thanks, we've got a great bishop that leads us, keeps us straight, and the importance of a heart of worship. And, uh, but we definitely miss, miss the pastor when he's not here, but he get, gets a vacation every now and then. I think he'd well, well deserved. And, uh, but once again, I've uh, about four years uh, on being here, and uh, this is home now for me. And so what I feel, I feel for uh, being the family, that we can talk as family members. And I think there's a general theme that just stays in my life that I, I, I when, it, when it became clear to me and, and the Lord really began to move in my life was when I began to understand that um, not everything was going to be a mountaintop experience. And there are the valley times, but that what actually happens is growth takes place in the valleys. And, and some of the hardest times and trials that I've been through is where I really experienced the most growth. And if we've seen anything, you watch the news, you see what's going on, you, you just can't hear me, can you hear me? Are you good? How about now? Alright, can you hear me now? Check, check, one, two. Jensen's back there on the soundboard, so it's his first time. So we're going to talk to someone who had a, a really low time, and uh, it's the low of the low. So you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Job. Every poor me experience, uh, there's something that draws us into this book. Um, because if anybody had a low, it was Job. And if anybody had a real good high afterwards, it was Job. So we need some, some kind of hope in, in the lowness, so we read through this book. So we're going we're gonna to take a snapshot here, and we're going to go to the middle of the book. So the first thing you do when you see Job is you see how it's broken up, and you realize how much talking takes place. Oh, you haven't read it in a while. Okay, so let's break it down. There's a lot of discussion. The story's little. There's a lot of talking about it. And so we're going to go to Job chapter 23. We're going to read verse 8 and 10. And I want, I want to get this setting here for you. So here's Job. He's in the middle of the trial of his life. And right now he's with three friends. And they're having this discussion and this dialogue is going back and forth and communicating. And this is where it, this is what Job makes a statement. If I could sum up the communication that's taking place, not the entire book, but the communication part of this, the conversation of where Job is at. He sums this up. He said, behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him. 
Now that's a low, low spot in this conversation for Job. Where Job says, I, I look ahead of me and I can't find him. I've looked behind. I know he's doing something, but I can't see it on my left. And I can't see it on my right. There's a, there's a feeling. I know God is, is here. He's working. But I can't see it. Yeah. And in this conversation, we rewind a little bit. And now let's go back to the, to the beginning. This is where Job's at. There's 42 chapters in the book of Job. It's a short story. There's not a lot of story to this. There's not a lot of what takes place because you find that m the bulk of the story takes place in the first two chapters and the last chapter. But Job in chapter 23 hasn't read chapter 42 yet. So this is very real pain, very real hurt, very real distress, disgust, disappointment. Joe is wishing he had never even been born. Now that is low. And so it says Job was a wealthy. He was upright. It talked about how he prayed for his kids and would sacrifice for his kids in case his kids did anything wrong. There's a whole lesson right there with Job. He was a righteous man. The Bible says he avoided evil. And Job doesn't see what's happening behind the scenes. I don't know if he ever sees this. But chapters 1 and 2 take place behind the scenes and the sons of God come before God. And of course, God says, you know, where have you come from? And Satan says, I've been walking to and fro the earth. And God knows what he's thinking. And he says, well, have you considered my servant Job? He's upright. He's righteous. Satan says, look at him. He's got everything good going for him. He's doing well. Of course he serves you. And God says, all right. He says, I'll, 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 let, I'll hold off. You can't touch him. So one day, Job's there and he's having a horrible day because he finds out that his wealth is gone, his family's gone, all within the span of a, a, just a little bit of time. The Bible says, while one was talking, the next servant comes in. He's saying, I alone escaped. We know the story, but I'm giving you this, this background information. And Job is still worshiping God. He still didn't hold it. And so Satan comes before God again. Because he told him, he said, God, he said, you've got a hedge around this guy. I can't touch him. And finally, God says, okay, but you can't kill him. And so now Job, we find, has got boils and sores and talk about a low. Talk about real loss loss of children. The wealth would hurt. The children hurts more. Real loss, real pain, and real despair. One of the things that Satan said, it was in Job chapter 1 and verse 10. He said, Hast not thou a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? My front, my back, my right, and my left. Job had God on every single side. 
He was blessed beyond measure. And now he's sitting there mourning, saying, I don't see him. And this is a very real place. Because we like to often fast forward to chapter 42. Job got twice of everything. Job's latter days were better than the former. But the reality is, is Job doesn't see that right now. And he's saying, I don't see him in front of me. I don't see him behind me. Where's God? It says then later, and Job keeps a really good attitude in this. He does, because he says in chapter uh, 1, verse 22, let me make sure I've got this. 121, he says, and he said, this is Job, he said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Listen, I'm already out of the running. Like, if this is me, number one, Satan and God are not talking about me, talking about how upright I am. And if this, even if I had been, at this point, right here, Job keeps his composure. He still worships God. So, so when we're comparing the story, even at this point, I'm out of it. I'm still not blameless. I'm not faultless. But we've got an example here in Job, right? So if anybody didn't deserve this, it was Job. And this is a really hard part of Job to really grapple with. When, you, when we really get the point of Job and what, and what Job's learning in this and what, what's happening behind the scenes, I've wrestled with that. But Job was upright. He was righteous. He doesn't see what's going on behind the scenes. And now here he is, alone, to the right and to the left. Finally, he's lost everything except his wife. And she's really kind and encouraging. And says, just curse God and die. Thanks, babe. <laughs> like, it doesn't get any lower at that point. The one person who's going to have, supposed to have your back. The one person who you're really relying on at this point now says, yeah, it's pretty bad, dude. It's <laughs> Go ahead. Just get it over with. So now we go. So that's the, the first part. And then we've got these 36 chapters of this discussion, of, the, of this conversation that they're having. And it's three friends. It mentions three friends to start with. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They start off just seven days of silence. What can be said? Mourning with Job, just sitting there in sadness and in loss, in a hopeless situation, in fear and doubt. And I can imagine Job's mind, the fear that's gripped him. He had a hedge that protected him, and now that's gone. A God that was all around him, and he can't perceive it. Seven days they sat in silence, but don't you worry, because they were planning their arguments. There was plenty to be said after seven days. And it is exhausting to read 36 chapters of them talking. Now, I'm only saying that because I tried. 
And I tried really hard before this so I could pretend like I read all 42 chapters again. I have read it at some point, but I, I couldn't do it. I skimmed it. Because it's a lot of discussion. Surely, Job, you have done something. I didn't. I didn't. Okay, Job, like, this doesn't happen for no reason. Like, surely there is something. Guys, I'm telling you, nothing comes to mind. He makes great statements of faith in, in this, and he's holding on, and he's holding fast. Surely there's, there's something in Job's stand. I've, I've been upright. I've done all that I can do. And he's still giving honor to God, but he's, he's holding fast, and the arguments are coming. And you, Have you ever gotten in that situation? I mean, sometimes you can be agreeing with somebody, and it turns into a disagreement. Just the sheer passion of it. And you're going, how in the world did this conversation derail so much? And here's Job, lost everything, and his wife said, curse God and die. She's not even believing in, in him anymore. And, and his friends are saying, surely you've done something. And he's at the, the lowest of the low because there's, like I said, it's real loss. It's real pain. And he doesn't know the end yet. For Job, this is probably the end of the story to Job in Job's mind right now. He still trusts God, but even if God chooses to take him, this is how his story ends. The situation's so hopeless. He's older. The children, the wealth is lost. And so he's sitting in this moment of just despair, and I, 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 I really try to grapple with, you've lost everything. And now the one thing that you need God is you're, and you're looking for it. And you can't find God in this situation. You, you can't see him. You don't perceive him. Right now there's a spirit of fear that has gripped us in our nation. And this, the feeling is, is hopeless. I feel like we, we learned to cope with things. We learned after 9-11 to cope with the fear of 9-11. We learned school shootings and we coped with the fear. And, and now there's a new fear that no one saw coming. And it's fear. It can be fear on both sides. I'm terrified you're going to give it to me. You better get your mask on. I'm terrified you're going to make me wear a mask everywhere I go. It's fa There's fear. And Job's in this place. He's fear. It's a new place. It's a new position. And 36 chapters of conversation go. It's, I mean, it's, it's a roller coaster of thoughts and reasons and kind of poetic at times and Job in it he curses the day he was born and even in the middle of chapter 13 he's verse 15 he says you know though he slay me yet will I trust him so he's planning to die because he says though he kills me I'm still going to trust him but I don't feel him and I can't see him and I don't perceive him. Now that's uprightness. So he's handled this really, really well. As, as best as anybody could handle this, I think Job has handled this. Again, now I'm out of the running. Because we're talking about me, right? So I'm questioning. I'm worrying. I'm, I'm, I'm questioning God. I've seen you move before God. But right now, this is hopeless. Right now, I'm scared. Right now, I'm in fear. 
And I know that you've done things in the past, but right now all of that doesn't mean anything. God, where are you? 36 chapters. He even says, man's days are few and full of trouble. I mean, can you imagine? And I don't know who was recording these conversations and just write it. I could probably write you the first chapter. The basics, get the highlights. If I got to sit there and listen to this conversation, the, the depth that this conversation goes, there had to be somebody taking notes because it is deep. Eliphaz is talking, then Job's talking, then Bildad's talking. I mean, it's just non-stop, on and on and on and on. Here he is in the middle, alone, even surrounded by his friends. Wife's there, still alone. Real pain, real loss. And, and if you're not careful, you see that this went on for a long time. And I've, I've been interested ever since I was little. Radio waves always intrigued me how they worked. Everything gets sent over radio waves. Something as simple as just a little radio. Jensen, he loves um, little walkie-talkies. But if I've got a walkie-talkie, and he's got the other walkie-talkie, we can talk to each other through radio waves. But the radio waves have a frequency. And if he and I are on the same frequency, then he can hear me. But if I change my frequency, he doesn't hear me at all. Because you will pick up and tune in to what channel you're tuned into. When you're sitting around with your friends for 36 chapters having this discussion, you've got to be careful on what frequency you're tuned into. You've got to be careful to what channel and what voices are speaking to you and what it's telling you. Because you better believe I, there'd be a point that I'd start saying, you're right, I don't deserve this. You're right. I got to tell you, this isn't fair. I got to tell you, if I can handle this myself, this is what I would do. And we'll post on Facebook and post on This is what I would do. This is how I would fix that situation. This is what we should do. And meanwhile, we'll read 36 comments on Facebook about how we should handle our life situations before we decide to tune in to the frequency that we should be listening to. But he keeps talking. And in this, in the conversation, and now Elihu speaks up. They didn't mention him at first, but he comes in at the end. And he, he actually is what I believe is the trigger to change the conversation. Because he says, I'm young and you're old. He said, I tried to be respectful. I wanted to be kind. He said, but listen, y'all have worn me out with conversation. He said, in all this, all you've done is justify, your, justify Job no one has justified God in this. And there's something about the perspective of a child and a childlike faith and a childlike trust. Little Ella had a splinter this week and at any given time you'll find that Ella will most likely not have clothes on in the house let alone outside, definitely she'll have clothes hopefully, but no shoes. And I'm constantly, when I'm mowing, inevitably I'm going to find a pair of shoes and i got to stop the mower, get off of it. I've got to get her shoes because she doesn't like wearing shoes, does she? And her dirty little feet on the deck. We've got a wooden deck and it's, it's seen some wear and tear and so she was running on the deck without shoes. 
And you can imagine what happened. She got a giant splinter. And so now she's just crawling. Oh, I got a splinter. Come here, baby. Come here. So we got her up and we sat her on the island. And let me look. No, no, no. You can't look at it. No, no. Let me, baby. I, don't touch it. And I got tweezers in one hand, you know. I'm not going to touch. Let me see it. I can see it. I can see the splinter. And I'm looking at it. And boy, I just want to just, I can get it. Just let me get it. You know, just quick pull it out. It's gonna, we're going to get this thing. No. I mean, you could just see, and this goes on, and I, I had to have a, I had a five-minute conversation with her, and I'm sitting there going, baby, yes, yes, daddy, does that splinter hurt? Yes. Do you want me to take it out? No, it's going to hurt. Again, okay, okay, so you don't want the splinter in your foot. I don't want the splinter. Okay, so you know that if the splinter comes out, the pain will stop. Yes. Okay, I'm going to take it out. No. Because the reasoning of a child, and how many times does God sit there and deal with us, you know? If you'd let me remove this from your life, and you're going, no, it's going to hurt too bad. Oh, I'd have to give up too much. Oh, if I, and, and meanwhile, God's having this, he's, he's, he's being patient and he's being kind. And there's a reason why childlike faith is so, is so important because it's how we approach God. And there's a big difference when my kids approach me in kindness and humility versus a sense of entitlement. I, I've had to reiterate to my kids multiple times that they own nothing. Nothing. You know, and the big punishment now, spanking doesn't work anymore. Is there, you know, Jensen pretty much looked at me one time like, the best you got? Like, okay. all right. Well, guess what? You got an Xbox. I'll take that. You can't take that. You can't put a time limit on my iPad. Well, guess whose it is? That's mine. Well, whoa, 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 whoa. What would you say? I got that for Christmas. I got that. Who paid for that? You, you, I remember when I was, I was either 17 or 18, I had a great relationship with my dad, but inevitably we had a fight. And I remember him saying, you can go. You can take everything you own. So I went up to my room and I sat on my bed. And I was like, well, I, I guess I could, nope, can't take my bed. Didn't pay for that. <laughs> uh, maybe a couple shirts. Couldn't even take my underwear. I didn't buy my own underwear. I'd have a couple of shirts and maybe a pair of shoes. Because I own nothing. But boy, when they come to me and with a sense of humility and a sense of, Dad, I know that you own everything. Oh, does it turn me quick. I don't care if I've got punishments lined up for days over something they did. When I see them in a soft, sensitive, and aware of this and, and finally aware of the situation when I see their demeanor change it melts me quick Elihu said you've spent a lot of time justifying yourself not God but see the children are immature and can't reason they don't reason the way that I reason and nor can I expect them to and how much more am, am I with God throwing a tantrum like a child or not seeing the full picture because I don't understand and I can't reason the way that he reasons and the way that he understands. What I find is that usually the person that's doing all the complaining is the one who has the least invested in, in, in a job. It's usually the one who, who has nothing involved, has never been to a meeting, 
has no skin in the game, as they say, they're usually the one who complains the most. 36 chapters of conversation by friends who just kept it going on and on with Job, distractions, a frequency that shouldn't have been picked up. My children complain because I yell when water gets all over the bathroom floor. A quarter inch of water from the bathtub all the way back to the door. They have no concept of what water damage can do to a house because they've never paid for a house. They've never had to repair drywall or fix it because they have the least amount invested into this. What frequency would I be listening to if I said, I see you're having fun splashing in the tub. Keep going, guys. It looks like you're having a good time. The conversation Job's having is similar. He's tuned into this for a very, very long time. But see, God ultimately is going is to do, do something. And it's not what you necessarily think should happen. Because I want God to explain why he did what he did. Because my human thinking looks at this and go, and basically says, so what? We, we had to prove something? To Satan, we had to prove... It, the book of Job doesn't completely answer this for us. It doesn't settle this all. And there's something in our flesh that stays there with a question of God almost for Job. Now I don't know if there is a good explanation. I haven't read one. I haven't. But I do know that there's almost a superseding view that you have to take of this story to really understand what God is conveying to Job. Because there's a verse that we, that we I mentioned in the uh, beginning in its verse 10 chapter 23 verse 10 and after he said he hideth himself on my right hand that I cannot see him verse 10 says but he knoweth the way that I take when he hath tried me I shall come forth as gold he's still in the middle of this but he's got a hope and a trust that he's coming through his gold. Yes. Hey, if God kills me, I'm coming through his gold. If he lets me live, if I live with boils even longer, I'm coming through his gold. And so the conversation, and these are Job's thoughts throughout. Job's maintaining, he's keeping his faith. The conversation's going on. This summer we went to South Carolina and there's close to Charleston is what's called Patriots Point and if you've ever been there they've got um, an aircraft carrier and then they've got a destroyer the USS Laffey and uh, I, I, I always get kind of fascinated and even f just from the simple design perspective of some of these ships you know this was built in the early 40s and they didn't have CAD I work with a lot of CAD so I'm used to design I mean when I was in high school we used to have to actually draw everything by hand very few people had the computers now everything's on the computer so I know a little bit about sketching and dimensioning and tolerancing by hand very very little because then it just quickly transformed the computer so if I want to send a part file or if I want to send a design I just do it digitally now so and its design changes are really quick easy to do but back in the 40s, 
They're designing like these buildings and these ships, and you have what was called draftsmen. That their whole responsibility was to convey the design, to convey the 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 principle, whatever the principal engineer wanted to do. They're trying to convey this into drawing form, and so you go through these build these ships or buildings, old anything older, and you think. It blows my mind how they got this done because somebody would draw it and they'd make a change and they'd have to do a change order, then they'd draw it again. And so I'm going through this ship, the USS Laffey, which was a destroyer in World War II, and it was uh, roughly in service for about a total of 30 years. And it was in one battle, the Battle of Okinawa. It was positioned, it was the closest destroyer to Japan. They say that it had the most relenting kamikaze air attacks in history of anything else. For under an hour, there was an attack on this destroyer. And the kamikazes were coming in one after another, trying to hit it, trying to destroy it, trying to bring this ship down. And if you go through this and you start to look at all the intricate design and the work and everything that went into this, and you're it, it, start, it blows my mind, because all it would have taken would be one guy who had nothing invested in this, who had nothing really to worry about at the bottom of the ship, doing a weld, doing something quick, doing something easier, that would have made this ship less than perfect, and at the right point, the right attack, it would have sunk. For one hour, this ship withstood the attacks. Its guns were jammed, its rudder got jammed, it could only basically make one maneuver. The History Channel, they had this display or this uh, program where we could watch for about 20 minutes and just kind of went through the battle and, and what had happened. And in all of this, as it gets attacked, it's called the ship that wouldn't die because it just kept on. And what, every attack that came on, and they credit it to the builders. They credit it to the men that built the ship. They didn't take shortcuts. They didn't quit. They welded every seam right. I'm thinking about Noah and I'm imagining him when he's building this ship. And he's, he's you know, I don't know if he already was a carpenter or a shipbuilder for the first time, but he knew what to do. And imagine him if he had, at any moment, if he had wanted to ease up on the tar or the pitch that went inside, or, ah, we can just lay a thinner layer, it'll be fine. But the thing is, is that the, the true test of the ship is not found in the still waters. The true test of the ship is found in the battle. And the true test of the ship is found in the storm. The trial is what brings forth and shows how strong the ship is. The trial is where the growing takes place. And it's so easy at the hardest time to give up and to quit. It's so easy when you don't see the end of the story to say, I'm finished and I'm done. It's really easy to lose hope in those last couple minutes of the fight. But the thing is, is that you haven't seen the end yet. But know this, the battle, the struggle, the fight is what's going to prove how strong the ship is. One of the things this world has taught me this last couple months, before we had the mask mandate, I'd see some people with masks, some with not. We didn't know how deadly the virus is. We were hearing somewhere around 10, 8% death rate for, for the... So come mid-March, maybe mask, maybe no mask. I remember walking through Lowe's and just kind of holding my breath as I would pass somebody. Just, you know, 
And then eventually it turned into, I'm going to wear a mask or I'm going to wear gloves. or I think, I think a lot more now when I touch a doorknob. I'm, I'm worried that something's going to get on me or something's going to get in me. And in the spirit world, if you think about it, everywhere we go, is something going to get in me? Is something going to get on me? Who am I hanging out with? What conversations am I having? That's right. Because there comes a point when this ship is going to sink by not what's outside of it, but by what gets into it. Am I building something firm for my family? Am I building something firm in my life? Am I making sure that I take every single precaution and every single step because I can't let it affect me? I got to be careful what I'm dialed into. And so there comes a time and eventually it's God's turn. Chapter 38 and verse 1 through 4. After all this, now God's going to speak. The beginning of it, you know, he says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. and Talk about a whirlwind. The storm of Job's life. And said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man. What he said was, You better man up for what you're about to hear. And it when they would say gird up your loins so when they had their tunic they would it wasn't it was comfortable but it wasn't necessarily maneuverable and it wasn't really meant for battle or for working so they would take the the tunic and they'd pull it up pull all the extra slack then they would pull it back behind them and kind of separate it on two parts and then tie it in the front because you can't maneuver in what you've been wearing you need to get ready to fight they would do this in battle. They would do this for work. But it became a, a term for saying, you better man up for what you're about to hear. And so he tells him, he says, Gird up thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Where hast thou, or where wast thou, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. And he goes on and on. And all he says is basically, you tell me. Alright, Job. Explain to me. And in this humbling place, you've got God's attention and now he's going to ask you something. This is the hard part to deal with, that God doesn't sit there and tell Job why he did what he did. We want an answer. Right from God. We want an explanation as to why. But there's a reason why God says things like, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them. Boy, getting humbled by God. You answer me, Job. And in all this, he doesn't explain because there's something about putting God in proper perspective through any trial, through any situation, through any task. And it'll go against everything your flesh desires. When your flesh wants an answer, when your flesh wants reasoning, 
when you and your friends want to sit around and talk about it for 36 chapters and kind of argue and try to get to the point. Listen, I went to Bible college. I've had lots of useless conversations. I would tell you we've spent around arguing some of the dumbest things you could ever argue. Let me, I will tell you there's something about just saying God has it in control. God has it in his hands. I don't see him on the left or the right or in front or behind in my flesh. But boy, I got to tell you, and you know how you know it's God? Because boy, it makes that flesh uncomfortable. Boy, that flesh wants to fight. That flesh wants a reason. That flesh wants an answer. But when it's really God, and you know the only thing I can do right now is fall down in my face and say, God, you're right. You're on the throne. I know you've got it under control. I know you've got every situation. So God, though you slay me, I'm still going to trust you. Though you take my life and if it costs me everything, I'm still going to trust you. Because remember, real pain, real hurt, real loss, wanting a real answer. And God says, where were you? And that's not the answer that I wanted Job to get. Because God doesn't want reasoning. He doesn't need your reasoning. Apologetics are great, but he doesn't need someone to understand all the mysteries of the Bible. Everything that's in it. It's good. It's for us. But there's something very, very simple at the bottom of all of it. Of every trial, of every test, every test of faith, everything, every storm that God puts us through. It's a simple underlying, just simple, I, God, I still trust you. God, I still believe you. I know you've got your hand on me. When reasoning and discussion hasn't worked, when I've went through my mind a thousand times and it still doesn't make any answers or it doesn't compute and I'm confused and I'm lost, there's something very simple about a God who says, I'm still in control and I've still got the answer. And I don't have to explain to you. I don't have to explain to anybody. But the natural response is for me to fall on my face and say, God, you're right. Though you are God and you are on the throne, I am not. I trust you. I obey and I will believe. And that's the point that Job got to. Because Job never got an answer as to why. He never, it doesn't say he ever went back to his friends and said, this is why it happened. This is what God told me. All he had was the answer was that I am God. And I think that's the part that sticks with me. Because I read it, and I'm excited, I'm God. But really, you're not going to give him an answer? Oh, that's the story right there, though, right? Because every day I get up, and I realize the flesh wants an answer. The flesh wants to reason. The flesh wants to explain. The flesh doesn't like this trial. And for some reason, if I could just understand it better, or if I knew that this trial was going to produce X, Y, and Z, I could go through it. But Job didn't know that. Job hadn't read chapter 42 yet. With loss of kids, fearing loss of life, a wife who seems to be against him, friends who are arguing against him. It is a very real situation. But he said, I'm going to come forth as gold. We know the end of the story that Job was blessed. And the Bible talks about his latter end being greater. But this is the statement he makes to God. He said, I have, in chapter 42, verse 5 through 6, he said, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. 
So I, I heard what you could do, but now mine eyes seeth thee. And the natural response to seeing God, he says, Wherefore I abhor, my, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. The natural response when God's dealing with you in trials and situations is to get your mind right with God and understand that God is in control and every reasoning, any selfish pride. Because there were 42 chapters. Two chapters, the first two chapters were basically the story. It's 5%. Chapters 3 through 38 were to the discussion. 86%. God spoke the three chapters, 7%. The rest of the story is another 2%. But there's something about this less than 1%, a small fraction of his answer where he repents and he humbles himself to hear from God. I really believe strongly, wholeheartedly, that in this hour with our church, there is a, there is a moving and it'd be real easy to take sides in a camp. Boy, it'd be easy. It'd be, regardless of what political side you're on, boy, it's easy to side. Boy, I got it. Mm. And I don't know what you've got going on. I know we've got some seasoned saints here. And God's brought you through stuff. But there's something about when you are in a trial. And when you are in a test. And when you are facing a hopeless situation. I don't know what your chapter 42 is going to be. Job had double what he had. He says his latter years were greater. But in the middle, though he slay me, you're still going to come forth as gold. If he gives you twice as much as you had, you're still coming forth as gold. If he takes everything from you and you don't get every answer that you wanted, I promise you're still coming forth as gold. Let's stand. Let's praise the Lord of heaven. God. We come before you, God. We ask you to see us in this place. God, I pray for every person right now that feels they're in the middle of a battle, in the middle of a trial. Lord, I pray that you would minister. Lord, when reasoning doesn't work, when doubt and fear have crept in, Lord, take us to the place where you're saying to us, you are God. And a simple trust and a simple faith may be all we have right now. A simple little belief, a trust, a hope. Because you said we're not going to see it. A hope that is seen is not hope. But we're going to believe in faith. Amen? Amen. Amen. God, God bless you.